Well, hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-host, Maria Wickvilla, and Caroline Diarty edwards Maria, of course, is the founder of Applicant Lab, and Caroline is the former director of admissions at NCOD and the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions. So we're here again for the 2021-2022 MBA admissions season. You know, it's June and people start getting really serious about admissions. They start hiring admission consultants. They start looking around at the applications already at this date. Harvard, Wharton, Kellogg, Chicago Booth, Darden, Ross, Emory, UCLA, Cambridge, and HEC Paris have posted their new deadlines for this coming admission season. And we want to talk a little bit about what to expect. We know based on both anecdotal evidence as well as our interviews with admission directors that this past admission season was among the most competitive ever. We don't think this one is going to be nearly as competitive. At least I don't. Maybe Caroline and Maria think differently. But we're already seeing some tweaks to essay questions. We're seeing, at least in Darden's case and Michigan Ross's case, an, an extension of the test waiver policies that they put into effect during the pandemic. And uh, the deadlines, you know, one thing about deadlines, even if a school hasn't announced them, all you have to do is look back at the previous year And if anything, they might change by a day or two, but not much more. So you can almost pencil the tentative dates into your calendar based on the previous year's deadlines. So let's just start with Caroline. What do you expect? I I think it's there aren't going to be many major changes this year. I think the schools have enough to deal with with the ongoing uncertainty and and you know the, the scenario planning that they have to do because there's still no way of knowing exactly how things are going to play out pandemic-wise over the next 12 months. I mean, hopefully we're coming out of this, but there are variants popping up and the schools still have a lot of uncertainty and volatility in the market to deal with. So I think that, you know, where they can keep things stable, that's a good thing, right? It's one less unknown quantity to deal with. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense for the schools to have some consistency in their application process, in their policies, and the questions, because they have enough enough chaos to deal with, and you know that's it creates a lot of extra work for the, for the admissions teams when they have you know there's variability in the application volume coming in, there's uncertainty about how big a season it's going to be, and then of course there's a lot of uncertainty about yield still because people are applying to many schools, they're also applying knowing that there may be some uncertainty about the, the format, the how much will be in person, how much will be online, to what extent the programs will be hybrid. And so in that context, people may be applying without being absolutely sure that they really want to go to a school or that they really want to go to business school in the next season. So that creates uncertainty for the schools and, and, and probably weaker yields that they will have to manage. That's true. I mean, it's easy to slide into the point of view that right now, particularly in the U.S., things look like they're getting back to normal. I mean, in my county, Marin in California, 87% of the population by the age of 12 has already been vaccinated with one dose at least, and more than 70% with two. And things are getting very close to normal. Sure, people are wearing masks and 
slightly social distancing, but you know, you can have a meal indoors and most schools are predicting a return to campus in the fall. But the U.S. is not the world. And in some parts of the world, the pandemic rages at full force and uh, very few people are vaccinated. And it is a worldwide market for MBAs. And so that needs to be taken into account for sure. So Maria, what are you seeing? I'm seeing the same thing that Caroline is as well. I think, look, when you have, when you're juggling so many different uncertain things, like you've got the flaming, uh, you know, the swords and there's just, there's all kinds of crazy, horrible chaos that's happening. If you're in admissions right now, why make it harder for yourself? Why throw some other potentially painful thing into the mix of things to juggle and have to worry about? So I... I think most schools, I mean, I think we can talk in a minute about some of the schools that are making some minor changes, but I think most schools are sticking with things that are the same just because why make it harder for yourself? You're already going through an obstacle course with all of the, you know, the the things that Caroline and the challenges that Caroline mentioned. Why would you make it any harder for yourself by trying to introduce a new question and then, okay, well, what do we want to get out of this question and let's agonize over the wording of the question and how do we ascertain what's a good answer to this question like why just just make it make it easier for yourself we've we've all earned a break this year yeah <laughs> that's not- really that's really true and you know even when there is a change it seems to be incredibly slight kellogg for example this week announced a new video question but they're telling you in advance what it is so it's not as if they're going to get a spontaneous response on video from you <laughs> Anyone have a comment on that, Maria? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. So, so as we discussed, I, th- I think in our last session or in a recent session that Caroline and you know, I, we both love the video questions for a number of reasons. I do think that it it lessens the impact of a video question if you tell people in advance, "Here's what the video question is going to be," because then they can just prepare for it. But I do think that there's been a, you know, I think last year it was they specifically that third question they wanted it to be around what's a challenge you faced in 2020. And I, if I'm understanding correctly, I think this year it's just going to be more around, just tell us about a time you faced a challenge and demonstrated resilience. So it's, it'll be a little bit broader. I think you can choose from a a longer time period of, of your own history, but it's essentially going to be a very similar question. And it's interesting. I would love to be able to, I would love to be a fly on the wall at Kira Talent and see the answers that come in for the schools that do announce the questions in advance versus the responses from candidates who have no idea what the questions are going to be in advance. I suspect that you probably get more valuable data from not announcing the question in advance, but. True. And that, and and the call question is simply share your resilience with us. And then Michigan Ross, actually, uh, they reduced with three essay questions to two. They placed a new word limit on the career goal essay, cutting it by a third. So if anything, you know, it, it, it seems that schools are trying to make it easier, more flexible for people to apply. NCIAD is yet to uh, publish its, you know, September intake of uh, next year deadlines. I'm sure they'll be out momentarily because NCIAD is usually one of the first schools on the, on the schedule to release all of their deadlines. And do you expect any changes at NCR, Caroline? No, I've checked in with the admissions team there and and they, they're not planning any, any major changes. I mean, I think part of it is who in an admissions office has had time to think about making any changes, <laughs> right? Because it, it, it doesn't look like much just coming up with a new essay question. But 
I mean, they actually do have to give this quite a lot of thought and get some feedback on the question. And, you know, it is a whole process, right, to change part of the admissions process or the policy and the questions. It, it On the surface, it may look, may look very simple, but there is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to to formulate that and a lot of thought and effort that goes into it. They, it's not just a sort of something they pull out of thin air, right? So, and the schools have just been so overwhelmed with the additional workload that the, the, the last 12 plus months have created that I don't think anyone's had a time to, had, had any time to take a step back and review if there are any, you know, good improvements that they could make to their processes. They're just sort of hanging on with the skin of their teeth, I think, and trying to keep... <laughs> keep their nose above water so I don't think anyone's had time to really take a step back and take stock so perhaps there will be some more changes next year if things have stabilized a bit but I I, I don't think that that uh, that, that we're going to see many big changes this year and Caroline when you were at NCIAD as the admissions director uh, did you put through changes in essay questions and if so what was your motivation and what impact did those changes have do you recall Right. So we streamlined things a little bit, which I know seems hard to believe because it's still so long. And, uh, <laughs> and, and <laughs> wait, what did it, what did it used to be? This is this new, this is the streamlined version. What did it used well, to be? Well, so we cut down <laughs> the word count a bit. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure cussing word count makes it any, it doesn't make it any less time consuming for the candidates, right? It's sort of the number of questions that, that creates the work. And sometimes having a shorter word count actually makes it much harder. We also, I mean, I, I did more work with the interviewers to work on sort of formulating a more consistent format for, for the interviews and the interview questions. But otherwise, uh, I think the biggest change that, that INSEAD has, has adopted over the past few years is the video questions. And that, that's come out in the, in the last few years. And, and um, you know, that they, they, they love those questions because it's very quick for the file reader to review, right? It's literally three or four minutes to watch and it's like a mini interview and I think in that snapshot you can learn a lot about a candidate you know makes me think of the Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink um, about how much you can you can perceive in actually an incredibly short time frame much more than we we realize and and I think that um, you know those video questions are a good example of that that you actually you can glean a great deal of information from from those short questions. So I think that's a that's the most interesting addition um, to the process over the past few years. Right. And I know Darden has made a, a, a few slight changes as well. Right, Maria? Yeah, that's right. So Darden for the past couple of years has, has had the same buckets of questions. They've had a leadership question and they've had a diversity question. But what they've done this year is they've taken it instead of having one more vaguely worded prompt, you can now choose between two more specific prompts. Um, so for example, they've they've had a question in the past about like, tell us about a time you made a meaningful impact. Now you can choose between talking about a time you were part of a team that identified some sort of opportunity or talking about a time you did something for the greater good. So depending upon where your strongest stories are, that, you know, that's going to be the option you choose. And then the diversity question, I thought this was interesting. They used to phrase it something like, tell us about a time you've engaged with people who are different from yourself. And this year they've given you two options. One is tell us about a time you've advocated for people who are different than yourself, right? So that's a slightly higher bar. You're not just engaging with people. You're actually advocating for them. You're actually stepping up to champion them or make things better for them in some way. 
Um, or the other option is tell us about a time that you've learned about uh, people with different perspectives. And that's like the sort of, that's like the runner up prize. Like if you haven't actually advocated for others, uh, you don't have to feel like a bad person, <laughs> you know, at least, I think as long as you sort of identify your privilege, if that's the one you choose and you say like, look, I'm very fortunate. I've never actually had to advocate for people in a lesser position because it's just not something I've had to do, but events of the past year or reading this article or seeing this thing really got me thinking. And then at least you can talk about some sort of internal growth, hopefully, that you've had, even if your external actions have not yet caught up with that. So I like that because I think in the past, I, I feel like I worry that sometimes people who are, are good people, but who simply have not been in a position to advocate for for underrepresented folks, you know, I feel like they felt like they had to force an answer to this. And really yeah. be like, oh, they're, you know. Those changes reflect in a way the increased importance people are placing on diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as, you know, the, the tendency of today's MBA students and their desire to, to meld passion and purpose and, and, and uh, you know, get a job or have a difference in the world that, that makes a positive good. Yeah. And, and within the phrase diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think inclusion to me is the most the most powerful one in terms of, you know, it's not just enough to say like, hey, you have a different lifestyle than I do, or hey, wow, your culture is different from mine. That's interesting. But actually like saying like, okay, if normally people from your culture tend to be excluded, what can we do to make it a more inclusive? You know, if women tend to be treated poorly in tech companies, what do we do to make that more inclusive? And the list goes on and on and on. And so I think that's what I think when when they ask about when have you done, what have you done to advocate for others it's more, what have you done to make something more inclusive for others? Now, given how competitive this past admission season has been, if someone out there uh, has some offers and they're still, they still haven't accepted them, and they're debating whether or not they should apply in this next year or take what they have, even though it's not their first or second choice, what advice do you two have uh, for that person right now? Caroline? Well, I think, I mean, it, it depends if they've got an offer that they're excited about, but if they've got into a good school, then I think they should take that offer. I think too often candidates sort of second guess their chances and and I think it can be very foolhardy to withdraw um, if, you've, if you've got an offer from, from a strong school, knowing that there's a lot of uncertainty going forward, right? I mean, I think it's still going to be a very competitive season and you also need to think about whether your profile is going to be any stronger, right? If um, it, time is, in, is important and if you're at the point where you're getting, you're sort of getting towards or past the average age for a class, if you don't see that your career is going to take a major step forward in the next 12 months or the next few months before you would be applying again, mm -hmm. then I would encourage candidates to, to take an offer if they've, if they've got an offer from a good school that is going to help them achieve their goals. Because, you know, it, it's very risky to, to withdraw and, and start all over again. Uh, and unless you see that your profile is is really going to be much stronger next time round. Right. Now, for people who are out there uh, deciding whether or not they need help uh, with this process, uh, I was speaking to Maria a little earlier offline, and she was indicating that June 1 is sort of the start date for action. Although I imagine that uh, the more popular admission consultants have already been spoken for. Uh, Caroline, do you know if some of your colleagues are already booked for round one? 
Yeah, I mean, I think every year we see people starting earlier and earlier. So um, we've certainly signed up a lot of people already for for the the fall application deadlines. Uh, And sometimes that can be tricky, right? Because you don't necessarily have the essay questions or the deadlines or um, so, you know, there's a lot of preparatory work that we can do, but it's not until the schools confirm the requirements that you can actually get down to some of the, um, the, the nitty gritty. But yes, I mean, we, we're already pretty busy um, and some of my colleagues are almost full already for the season. So lots of, lots of early birds this year for sure. Right. And Maria, you're already seeing the early newcomers to your platform. Yeah, I think last year freaked a lot of people out. I think word got out that it was this crazy competitive year. And so I think a lot of savvy applicants are realizing that, hmm, you know, no no one ever regretted spending more time on their application, right? <laughs> I mean, unless if they spent something like insane, like, you know, five years or something. But, you know, no one ever said, wow, I only spent four months and I wish I would have only spent two. Like, n- no one ever says, I wish I would have spent less time preparing for business. Yeah. So, so I do think that people are starting to, catch on to the fact that this is a it's a rigorous process. It is not something you can pull together in a weekend, at least not doing it well. So I think more people are are catching up to that idea. That's true. And then there's the um always the typical advice, you know, when to apply. Should you go for round one or should you go for round two? Probably not round three. Uh, but what's your basic advice on round one or round two? Because if you're thinking about it now, you should have enough time to prepare an excellent round one application, I would think, because those dates are still months away. But maybe you, you know, you're on an assignment, maybe you have some uh, personal responsibilities during the summer that may prevent you from devoting as much time as you'd like to do the best application you can, in which case I would assume that it's better to wait for round two. Am I right? Yeah, rule number one is apply when you are, you know, you've had the time to prepare your application and and make it the best it can be. So you should never apply in a rush and you shouldn't apply if you think that waiting for the next round, especially if it's round one to round two, will make a substantial difference in your profile. And and that does happen, right? You'll have candidates who are up for promotion or, or they've just started a new job a couple of months before the round one deadline and they feel they haven't got much substantial to say about that role yet. And so they want to wait a few months so that they've got more to show as regards their achievements and perhaps then they can get a you know really strong recommendation from their from their new boss. So in some cases it does make a lot of sense to to wait. But if you don't see that your profile is really going to evolve and improve over the coming months, then you know definitely hit round one. It's better to start so the earlier you start, the better, because it gives you more options then to consider in round two if, you ha- if you're not where you want to be by the end of round one. That's true. It also increases your chances of getting a scholarship. Obviously, when you apply in round one, most of the seats, uh, if not all, are not taken. I mean, given the deferrals that have occurred in the last year or so, there probably are a number of seats that are taken, uh, but not in every case. It also, if you're an international student, gives you more time to, to complete the visa process. That's, that's a really important issue. And if you get an offer, you know, you're often invited to admit weekends, guest lectures, and other opportunities to already begin the networking uh, with others who have been accepted. These are all really positive things to apply early. It gives you more time to make the transition to campus, find a place to live if you're not going to live in a dorm. 
and maybe even start the career counseling process because many career management offices begin to work with candidates as soon as they say, yes, I'm coming. So those are all really good, solid reasons to try to get it done early. The other thing that it does is it gives you a little more time for round two, right? I mean, if, if you think practice makes perfect and you get those early round one applications out, you might try for a few more in round two. And isn't it true that you, your application will be better after you've done a few of these, Maria? Yeah. I mean, look, once you get that, it's that first one that's always the hardest. And then after that, they just get progressively easier because you're at least developing a little bit more, I don't know, muscle memory, as it were. And you're like, oh, one of these, one of these essays again. All right. Um, (laughs) That having been said, though, I think sometimes people ask like, well, if my applications are just going to get better as I go along, should should I apply to more of my quote unquote safety schools in round one and then save you know, my top choice schools for round two with the idea that maybe I'll just get better. And I'm like, that's ridiculous because first of all, what if you get into one of those quote unquote, less competitive schools in round one, and then you apply in round two, at some point you're going to have to make a deposit and you might have to pay money, thousands of dollars to hold a seat in a class. And you're going to have to pay thousands of dollars to hold that. And so you might have to say like, well, do I pay the money? Because I mean, like, what if I get an interview to Wharton? And then it just becomes, it just becomes very, very stressful. And so I, I think the where I'm coming down on this is that the the delta, that sort of improvement, that marginal improvement that you might get from having Wharton, let's say, be your number six application instead of the first application you do, I don't think that the, the improvement is going to be that much greater that it's worth holding off for a later round. Right. That's my take on it. Yeah, I think that's a good take, definitely. And uh, what about the people who are thinking, man, I really want that MBA? I know. It's going to really help my career. It's going to set the stage for uh, making my life more professionally fulfilled uh, and meaningful. Uh, And they're wondering, how in the world am I going to devote enough time to prep for a standardized test, to do all these essay questions, to line up my recommenders? There's so much to do. What's your advice in terms of just saying, hey, you can do this and here's how? (laughs) <laughs> I think breaking it down into chunks is, is really important. It, it's it's project management, right? It's, it is a big project and it, there are a lot of steps to get through. So start early and, and give yourself, you know, carve out some, some regular time. It's very difficult to do if, you know, you want to write all of your essays in one weekend and you're going to, de- you know, devote the entire 48 hours to churning everything out. So I think it works much better if you sort of can can carve out an hour or two um, during the week and, and sort of have some regular time slots when you're working on things because the MBA application is something that it you know it needs to sort of mature and it takes time to to um, to do drafts to reflect to revisit there's sort of a maturation process that it goes through and you know you need to sometimes you know you'll you'll write something you'll work on it for an hour and then you'll go and do something else go for a run and then you'll have a great idea about something that you could change and so so i think it's helpful to break it down so that you know you're not wearing yourself out with marathon sessions with working on the application or or you know the same for the for the gmat test prep and it is difficult because by definition most mba candidates are incredibly busy with their day jobs and you know, free time is not easy to carve out. 
and, and often, you know, they've had a very busy day. It's difficult to come back, you know, and I remember doing that, right? You've had a busy day at work and then you come back and you know, the last thing you feel like doing is sitting down and churning through some more GMAT questions. You know, it's not the most thrilling thing to do in your free time, but it, it's really important. I think, you know, I, I am a big believer in, you know, it's a cinch by the inch, but it's a trial by the mile. Um, and so if you can break it down into bite-sized pieces over time, I think that, you know, you'll, you'll do yourselves a big, do yourself a big favor and, and have a much better outcome at the end. Yeah, that's really true. Maria, you have advice for people who are worrying how in the world they're going to balance their uh, personal and professional lives uh, with all this application stuff? Yeah, just to add on what Caroline said, like realize that thousands of people somehow manage to do it every year and they can do it and you can do it. And yeah, you just have to break it down into little pieces and find some way to motivate yourself. You know, like I, I remember, I remember getting home late at night and opening up that GMAT book and being like, oh no. <laughs> but you just have to like, you have to figure out what is it that motivates you? I think we all, everyone has something that motivates them, but we all kind of have different motivational styles. So some people respond better to like the boot camp coach who's like, you know, run around the field, drop and give me 20. And some people respond better to like the, the kindly grandmother type. So I think part of it is trying to figure out how to talk to yourself uh, in a way that works. And, and if it's, if it's a matter of like, putting up a picture of that school you want to go to on your on your bulletin board or saying, okay, once I get through another 100 GMAT questions, I'm going to treat myself to a meal that I really have been looking forward to. Like also give yourself, give yourself little milestones, but also give yourself little rewards along the way. And at least that way you won't get too depressed. And other people have done it too. So I know it sounds hard. It's like parenthood, right? Like you have a baby and you're like, how did anyone ever get through this? And then you're like, oh yeah, wait a minute. Bill, literally billions of people do this every, all the time. So and how many times has Caroline done it? She does it a lot. She's really good at it. <laughs> now she's done it again with a new puppy. And now, with a puppy. Now I have another little baby girl here. Yeah. Just what I needed. Two years ago, uh, we asked um, people who had scored in the top 10% of the GMAT what their study habits were. And I think what we what we discovered, and there's a story on Poets and Quantum, it's called Study Habits of GMAT's Top 10% Scores. We discovered a few uh, number of takeaways that I actually think are quite good, good guidance and counsel uh, to get one through the application process. One was regular exercise actually correlated with higher scores, we found. Of the test takers who exercised at least once per week, the majority scored a 690 or better. Okay, so that's 60% of the people scored uh, 690 or better if they exercised once a week. Last minute cramming never worked. Uh, Like 80% of the top scorers gave themselves a break the day before the exam. So the day before you have to actually get something really done, maybe you should give yourself a little break. And then there is a sweet spot. You know, the majority of the top scorers studied like one to three months, which actually feels like a long time um, to me, but they weren't studying constantly. They were studying in spurts. Uh, we found that actually the top scorers didn't need to break the bank. The majority of them spent only 100 to $300 on their test prep. And then we also found, and this is, will not be a surprise to anyone who has already ex- experienced some success, confidence is key. You know, two-thirds of the top scorers said they felt confident and calm going into the exam. 
whereas less than half of the other scores felt that way. So, you know, be confident, give yourself some time, exercise, do it in spurts, not in, you know, one long marathon, compartmentalize what you have to do. Uh, It is project management, as Caroline has noted. Uh, Know that uh, in this cycle, while there may be some tweaks, we don't think there's going to be anything substantially different than what happened last year because the admission offices are uh, pretty, you know, frenetic right now, uh, just dealing with the last bits of the previous cycle and getting people uh, enrolled and closed. And they're not going to spend too much time rethinking everything and uh, trying to throw even more complexity into what is a complicated process to begin with. Uh, Caroline, any last words? Any any good luck or inspiration that you can? Uh-huh. Well, one thing that um, uh, I thought was interesting from GMAT tutor Ned Johnson, he mentioned recently, is that he thinks that the 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 big difference is sleep. So he has seen tremendous difference with some candidates when he has put them on, um, you know, a better. Um, the sleep schedule, right? He says that makes a tremendous difference in people's ability to prepare for the test and perform well. And I think, you know, it's something that we, that is easily neglected, especially for young people who have a very, you know, intense lifestyle. So I would encourage candidates to to think about that as well, because especially for, for exam performance, and um, that can make a huge difference. I love sleeping. Maria? <laughs> <laughs> I love sleeping too. <gasps> That's why we're friends. Um, no, I think if, if we're talking GMAT, I just, I think the official guide is probably your best, the best money you can spend pound for pound because the official guide tends to have the explanation. It's written by the actual test writers and it has the explanations as written by the actual test writers. So in terms of learning how they think, especially for more qualitative questions, such as the verbal reading comprehension type questions, you know, you could you could try to reinvent the wheel and start from scratch, or you could just say, "Well, I'm just going to learn how they view these things, and as long as I learn what they think about this reading comprehension passage, I don't actually, you know, I can save myself a lot of cognitive energy." So, I I really strongly advise the official guide, no matter what other way you are planning on studying, get the official guide and read through it religiously. So there you have it. And if you're reading Poets of Quant, you know that for every available seat at Stanford, there were 17 applicants. At MIT Sloan, there were 13. Same story at Harvard Business School. So we wish you good luck on your journey. You know, the the flag is down. The race has started. Uh, Go for it. Good luck to you. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. You've been listening to Business Casual. (laughs) 